Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Jason Brubaker is a Hollywood-based film distribution consultant specializing in video on demand. He's focused on helping you market and sell movies more easily by growing your fan base, building a buzz, and creating community around your title. And Carol, Jason is a donor to the Roy Dean Film Grants, right? Oh, yes, Jason. Thank you very much for being a donor for these many years, and uh, people love working with you. Thanks for joining us today. It's it's always been my pleasure. And, and Carol, uh, you know, um, it's always been fun working with you. Back long before I got any of my jobs out here in Los Angeles, I distinctly remember reading your book, uh, one of the first versions of your book and uh it's it's always a surreal experience to be able to interact with you um because you've had such an influence in my own uh filmmaking career so uh, i'm really happy to be here and i'm always happy to be a donor for the grant thank you so much because your consultations are greatly appreciated by filmmakers so we have a lot to cover today. I, I've listed about nine areas of distribution for us to discuss, and that will include video on demand, which I know is one of your specialties. But we want to learn first how you help filmmakers market and sell their movies. So let's start with growing your fan base, because from working with Indiegogo for years, I know that's the secret for crowdfunding, too, so tell us what you advise filmmakers to do to create a fan base, Jason. It's funny because my ideas on this continually evolve. Um, when I was first uh, started talking about this stuff, I was very much in the scope of, like, you've got to cut out the middleman. You've got to go, you know, and do the self-distribution thing and really, um, you know, really go out on your own and use some, some grassroots marketing tactics and all these things. Um, but in the years since, I've worked both um, with individual filmmakers, and I've worked for various distribution companies, um, some of which work very much in a traditional model. And what i found is, you know, when you become just, I even think the term self-distribution is an old term, but when you become your own distributor, all you're really doing is fulfilling the same role that a typical distributor would fulfill. And from that standpoint, um, creating an audience, building buzz, Uh, growing a fan base really revolves around two key factors. One is, is your movie interesting to a particular audience? And then the second thing is, who is that audience? The problem is, even though those sound like simple questions, the problem is most filmmakers never take the time to really think about that. Or they respond, you know, egotistically by saying, my audience is everybody. Everybody is going to love this movie, so therefore I don't have to think about it much more than that. And, you know, as most people know, when you say everybody, um, everybody in a sense is nobody. And most independent filmmakers do not have the marketing budget of a major studio to market everybody. So taking a step back and figuring out exactly, you know, is your movie interesting and, and who is it interesting to, you know, that, that, that can really, like, 
that begins the process of you actually figuring out how to reach the audience. Because I think the realization that I've had, and it took me a while to learn, is that you're not actually creating an audience. You're just tapping into an audience that already exists. So how do you find them? Well, if it's an audience that already exists, then the good news is more than likely they're congregating in different groups and communities on the Internet, and I would start there. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I, I just want to say that uh, in the Roy Dean Film Grant, I've got hundreds of applications here that we're going through, and exactly what you say is what the judges are looking for. They, when they read marketing, that if they say uh, this film it will fit everybody. Everybody is my audience. Then the judges think that they don't know who their audience is because it's it's just like you were saying. It's two things, and and who is the audience is really what we want you to tell us. And then we know that you're making this film for that group and you are marketing to that group, and we want to hear you tell us in the same application for grants and when you're pitching your film, you you need to know who those groups are, how to find them, and uh, and are you part of them because that's your money, don't you think? Your money is in that database somewhere? Yeah, um, and, you know... It, it's it's kind of a broad question, but, um, it, you know, uh, trying to find an audience and trying to really drill down and, and the tactics for actually getting that audience to pay attention to you. But, you know, a real simple tactic is once you've figured it out, once you've figured out that, hey, I'm going to go after um, uh, college-age women who love frozen yogurt. I mean, that's that's even still pretty broad, but once you start to drill down a little bit more and you start to find those communities, then you can start, you can create, as you said, a database of influencers, right? So I would get out a spreadsheet and I would find the top 50 in this scenario, I would find the top 50 blogs that are geared towards college age women who love frozen yogurt. Um, And, (laughs) you know, and, and an example of drilling down even more would be, okay, I want college age women who love frozen yogurt, who have a preference for chocolate yogurt. And then I would drill down even more and say, okay, all of those factors, and they have um, uh, a sister. You know, all of that kind of stuff factors into the thought process. And what we're doing here is we're creating an avatar. Um, It's a marketing term, but you're creating an avatar for your ideal audience or in in general business you would call it an avatar for your ideal customer and this is the kind of thing that you know once you do it once you create an avatar then the next step is to give it a name like okay well jill i'm i'm marketing to jill because jill loves you know chocolate frozen yogurt she's college age and she has a sister um so how many jills are in this world well there's a lot of jills so how do i find the jills you know, and, and those factors all feed into refining exactly who you're talking to, um, because this is what we're this is what marketing really is is just a conversation where you're connecting with people that have similar interests. Yes. Now, a good friend of mine used to say he was a distributor and um, and a sales agent. Uh, and he was president of um, one of the top companies in L.A. 
And he said that he gave them names, just like you said. He knew the market so well. It was Susie, the soccer mom in Indiana, or Six Bag Joe in Florida. And he knew knew that market. I mean, so when people brought him product, he would say, who's the market? And then he would drill it down, just like you're doing. So what you're having people do is what a distribution company would be doing. This is it. So that you really can talk distribution to uh, anyone. You can talk to distributors and sales agents and anyone who comes to you to buy your film. You have this great asset uh, through this avatar. Is that what you would call it? An avatar for your idea audience? Absolutely. And and, and again, I'm not really making that up. I'm I'm just taking that from these are traditional marketing concepts that all filmmakers need to start thinking about from day one with their movie. Um, and to your point about being able to talk to sales agents and distributors, you know, a lot of people over the years have started referring to me as the self-distribution guy. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy about that. If you want to call me the self-distribution guy, that's fine. That'll help, that'll help me, uh, you know, stand out in, in, in a world full of people out here touting the wonders of, of distribution um, I just tend to be one of these guys that's actually worked in distribution. That said, if you can come up with a good self-distribution um, marketing strategy, right, if you have a good self-distribution strategy, then when you talk to a traditional distributor or sales agent and you have all of this stuff already figured out, you've made their job incredibly easy. And it's important because – you know, I don't. I've been obsessed lately watching the show Shark Tank, um, which is popular, and it's these people that come and pitch business ideas to, um, like Mark Cuban and other quote unquote sharks. These uh, these rugged investors that just want to rip you apart on stage. But one of the the key concepts that always comes up in a Shark Tank pitch is this thought of risk to reward. Right? How risky is it, is the business venture? Um, versus the reward what's the upside and it, it really is a, a parallel to how distributors think about your movie because in the sense your movie is your product your movie is your invention you're an entrepreneur as a filmmaker and you've created this thing how risky is it for somebody else to invest their time effort and money into taking that thing out to collaborate with you so as an independent filmmaker if you come up with a self-distribution plan that is not dependent upon an outside distributor and you go to an outside distributor and you already have all this stuff planned out, you've made their life easier. In a sense, you've reduced the risk and you've at least increased the perceived upside. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be successful, but you've at least shown them that you're not the average filmmaker that, you know, comes to distributors and says, well, here's my movie. What are you going to do with it? Where's my million dollar check? Um, Because that's absolutely the attitude why, uh, that most filmmakers have, and it's a reason why most distributors ignore them. <laughs> right. That's right. I know. That's what Dave Fasil used to say. Um, okay. Now, uh, let's talk. Uh, I love this whole concept about the database because when people come to me to do crowdfunding, then that's the first thing I ask. How many names are in your database? Because, Jason, it's a science now. We know we have a multiplier. We know that 5% of your names will donate to your film. So if you've got a 1,000 names, 
definitely you can rely on 50 people to donate, and I, we usually get an average of $100 name. I mean, $100 a donation average. So you can quickly see that how much money you're going to get from your 1,000 names, and it, and it um, goes on with 2,000 names and so forth. So I think crowdfunding is really controlled by the database. So much more mm-hmm. money comes from the names that's in your database and from Facebook or tweets. Um, so let me ask you, a, a filmmaker I know had to have 5,000 Facebook friends to get her film on iTunes. So I wonder, have you heard about that? Um, I, I, I don't, do you know offhand, was that a distributor saying that to them, that they needed 5,000 names to get the movie on She said Uh, iTunes told her that to get part of the contract for them to take her on iTunes was they wanted 5,000 names on Facebook friends. She only had 4,000, so she did this massive campaign to increase it. um, I don't don't know a lot about that. I mean, there might be something more to that. Maybe iTunes was going to offer her some sort of special promotion, Um, and I can't speak to that. I don't know anything about it, but I do know – you know, I've spent some time working uh, with a company called Distriber, uh, and it serves as, you know, an upfront payment model, and they have a very high success rate of helping filmmakers, you know, navigate uh, the crazy waters out there to get a movie on the iTunes. And it's not terribly complicated from a content side, but it is terribly complicated from an encoding side. So, you know, for a movie to get on the iTunes um, – it typically requires that it goes through an iTunes-approved encoding house, uh, which is a very rigorous process where the encoder will look at every frame of the movie and um, correct any hiccups, and they have to do this before they even submit the movie to iTunes because on the iTunes side, they're going to perform another QC. But you telling me this about you know having X number of Facebook friends on the on the content side is just it's something that I've never heard before and I've worked with you know with all the different companies I've worked with I uh, it's not hyperbole to say that I've I've at least seen over 100 films you know get out and go to iTunes so um maybe just let me click that back to like 50 I I don't know what the actual number is but when I was working at distributor there were quite a few right Okay. Well, it is getting very important that you have a um, have a market, a database of names, and that you are on Facebook with your film, right? Not just your own personal, but uh, but I recommend that they have a Facebook page for their film. You agree? Oh, I totally agree with that. And and just going back to your iTunes point, there was one last thing I wanted to say about that. If you have a very robust Facebook following and a very, you know, huge email list, then you could use that as leverage and go to iTunes and say, hey, by the way, this filmmaker has 10,000 names on their email. Um, They have an email database of 10,000 opted in, you know, email subscribers, and they're going to do an email blast the first day of the release. Well, suddenly that shows that, hey, this filmmaker is willing to put some skin in the game. They have some value to offer. And then let me take it back to the concept I was saying Earlier in this scenario, that would represent. Now, this is all theoretical. There's no guarantees with any of this, but that kind of pitch would represent something where you're saying, "Here's a low-risk play for a potential high-risk reward." 
I mean, a potential high, uh, low risk. Gosh, Carol, I'm losing my ability to speak. <laughs> you want a low risk, high reward uh, potentially. And yes. once you do that, it, it gets to be really interesting because you create leverage, and you start to benefit from that leverage. Yes, it's very true. Uh, so, <clears throat> how let's go to how do you build a buzz around your film, Jason? Yeah, well, this, this is a very interesting day, uh, Carol. I, back at the American Film Market um, late last year, I represented a movie called Man Up, and that movie has a one up-and-coming um, Hollywood star coupled with an up-and-coming, or I should say, already established YouTube star. Um, and that movie is actually being launched today. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so at the time, you know, when folks are listening to this in the archives and, and what have you, just type in Man Up. Um, it stars uh, Justin Chan. Uh, but so I represented this movie at the American film market. And what made it interesting is the fact that there was already a little bit of buzz around it because it had a famed YouTuber and a famed somewhat growing name in Hollywood. And from that perspective, I, I learned some lessons, right? Um, I learned something that has been rolling over and over in Hollywood for years, which is put a star in your movie and, and you create some instant credibility and buzz. Um, because one of the first things that people ask you is who's in your movie. And if you don't have anybody in your movie, like a name, you know, why do you put Tom Cruise in a movie? You, you invest in Tom Cruise. You pay him a lot of money because you're hopefully going to recoup that money in the box office because Tom Cruise can get butts in the seat. On a smaller <laughs> scale, if you have a movie that has people um, with strong social media following, strong YouTube subscriber base, that they're known in a smaller circle, and the movie is made for you know much less money, it's a scaled-down version um, of, of like a big blockbuster, well, what we're really talking about is the exact same thing here. You're talking about a smaller Hollywood studio-type movie um, because the reason you would put these people in your movie is, is so that they help you generate buzz. So if you don't have people in your movie, if you don't have names, name actors, or people with strong social media following, um, that begins to become a little bit more risky because growing buzz is going to require a lot more effort on your part. The next chunk down from, you know, having some name actors in your movie, the next thing people are going to ask you is, what's your movie about? And this gives you a really good opportunity to perhaps create some controversy in how you describe your movie. Um, because you want to have a hook. You want to have something that's memorable um, so that people walk away and they're like, oh, man, I've got to see that movie. It's so wrong, but so right. So one example of that is, let's say that I'm doing a documentary there's a lot of documentaries out there that talk about how to, you know, eat a healthy plant-based diet. But what if I made a documentary that said, eat lard, <laughs> just eat lard. It's the best thing you'll ever eat, and all the science is wrong, and here's why. And, and you get all these other scientists to tell you that eating lard is probably the best thing you can do for your, for your body, and it's going to help you, and you should feed it to your kid. And you start to really take this angle and this approach that's counter- um, to what, you know, um, it, it's counter to what the, the common belief is. And suddenly, because of that, you have this point of controversy. And that can really help you, you know, make a memorable movie. Like, oh, you're the one that's making that movie about Lars. Yes. Uh, yeah. 
me. Um, <laughs> now there'll be all these documentaries about the wonders of eating lard. Um, it's not true, but so but that works, you can, Jason. Don't you you remember there was a, a film that Woody Allen had that was set in the future where they had proved that eating chocolate and deep fried food was really good for you. <laughs> And that's how we well, all talked about the film. I don't remember the name of it, but we all loved that whole concept because it was so far out. And that's exactly what you're saying. Uh, <clears throat> it's a hook. It, it absolutely is a hook. Now, it, just because you have a hook like that doesn't mean that you that you can sit back and wait for everything to happen. You got to be out there hustling. You got to be calling, um, you know, various news outlets and, and become your own publicist and or hire a publicist and really take a point of view and a strong stance and have a plan for like, okay, we're going to launch this thing on, you know, June 1st, 2016, and let's work backwards and see what the lead up is going to be to the eventual launch. And what are we doing, you know, to create promotion out there? And where are we sending people once they're interested in the movie? You know, that's the other part of it is, it's one thing to create a lot of buzz, but if that buzz, if you don't focus that buzz and send it in a particular direction, then it just dissipates. And it was like a fun little, you know, footnote in people's memory. The better idea with the buzz is to have a destination for people like check out the com, and they go there and they submit their email address and they get the, the special lard cooking book, you know, as, as sort of um, what we would call a lead magnet and they opt into the list, and now you're building an email address uh, database, which brings us full circle back to what you were saying earlier, that if you have an email database, you have strength. And that's, you know, again, just another point of leverage and, and further indication of how all of this kind of circles around and comes back to you. Um, the real problem when it comes to building buzz is that a lot of filmmakers create these movies, they don't even think about their audiences we've been describing, and they'll make a movie that doesn't have any sort of memorable hook. I made a movie about people sitting in a kitchen talking with each other about life. Like, that's great, but how do we sell that thing? Where does it go? And, by the way, now we're competing with, like, a thousand other movies that have, were just released this month that are exactly the same. So what is it about your movie that makes it different? Um, in sales, they talk about this thing called a USP, which is your unique selling proposition. And what it means is if you have a product that's very similar to a lot of other products out there, there has to be at least one distinguishing characteristic that makes her stand out. I always use the example of Mexican food. Uh, here in Los Angeles, there's about like 600 different Mexican restaurants. But whenever I talk to friends, uh, we're talking about going out to Mexican I'm like, do you want to go to the one that has the flaming margaritas? Or do you want to go to the one that serves green corn tamales only three out of the four months of the year or whatever? Or should we go to the one with the warm salsa? You know, we're not describing a Mexican restaurant by, you know, its name. We're describing it by the one thing that makes it unique. Um, right, Jason. How smart of you. Yes, the unique selling proposition. Right. And so all of that stuff can help. Having Tom Cruise in your movie is obviously a unique selling proposition because for that period of time, there's probably not too many other Tom Cruise movies that are being released on the exact same day. <laughs> right. If you don't have that, then you have this unique selling, you have this, this really strong hook because, oh, you're the guy who made the movie about the lard cookbook. Um, but what you don't want to fall into is that trap that most filmmakers get into that says, hey, I just made a really good movie. 
I just want people to see it. it. It's a lot of people talking about things that we all face as human beings. I mean, it's great. I, I understand the need to create, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, is this a hobby or is this something you want to turn into an actual business? Oh, my gosh. I love when you say that because that is true. And that is what the IRS is starting to say to some filmmakers, you know. So you have to keep that in mind. Business is key. This is the business of film. So well said, Jason. All right. Well, I just I want us to get into this uh, these areas of distribution to discuss. Sure. So I, okay. I thought we'd start with film festivals and the question really is: If you can't get into the top eight festivals, should you still keep trying to get into the smaller ones? You know, it's interesting. One of the last jobs I had, I was working with a traditional distributor, um, a, a great company, and I really learned a lot about how traditional distributor uh, works, especially an ethical one. And interestingly enough, you know, we went out and tracked all the movies that were at the top festivals because we wanted a piece of those movies. Um, we would love to acquire some movie from Sundance or we'd love to acquire a movie by, from South by Southwest or, or Hot Docs or, or some of the other various festivals out there. And the reason for that is if you turn around and you go over to like Netflix or HBO or Showtime or some of the other um, established premium subscription um, uh, channels out there, or I should say networks, um, they really love to hear that a movie came from one of these top festivals. It, it creates some perception of value, even if the movie is, you know, better than mediocre, but not great. Um, and that was really interesting to me because even if you had a movie that was like a, a couple years ago, it did well at one of the top festivals, but it never really got out to the marketplace. It, it dramatically loses value. Um, in the eyes of the eventual buyer, and that meant that a distributor probably wouldn't pay as much or even try to acquire it as aggressively. And all that stuff was really interesting to me um, because it, it just showed me how much how much these festivals really um, can benefit a filmmaker if they get into one of the top-tier festivals. Um, but the problem that you rightly pointed out is a lot of filmmakers apply for these festivals and very few actually get into them. You know, um, and we've all heard that there's a gazillion applications for Sundance each year and, and blah, blah, blah. So to your question, what do you do then? Is it so worthwhile to go out to other festivals or does it make sense to kind of take a different tact? And, and I would say that it, it's really dependent upon the filmmaker's goals, right? Um, when you go to like second and third tier festivals, your objective there isn't the same as, as like a Sundance. At Sundance, you're hoping somebody notices your movie and picks it up for a gazillion dollars. At these second and third tier festivals, you probably still have that hope, but if you've ever been to them, um, you're either showing your movie to um, a, a bunch of local um, residents or other filmmakers. I, I always make the joke that sometimes you go to these festivals and it's just other filmmakers trying to hand you postcards so that you go watch their movie. Um, obviously, in, <laughs> in, in those scenarios, it, it's obviously not going to be one of these things where you're going to make a three-picture deal with the studio. So by that alone, your strategy has to change a little bit. And I'm of the belief that these festivals are still good if you view them as your theatrical release, right? Because you could use a festival to say, I'm going to have a theatrical showing in this city, this city, this city, and this city. And my objective while I'm there, you know, with the festival's permission, 
is to get people to to build some buzz around my movie, to get people onto my email list, and maybe just as importantly, I'll have my movie available for pre-sale or pre-order right on my website, where I can just afterwards in the Q and A session, there's going to be a lot of people sitting there with their with their iPhones. I can say, hey everybody, just go check out mymovie.com and just sign up for my email list. Or hey everybody, you love this? Go ahead over to mymovie.com and and buy or, or pre-order a copy. It'll be available in three months. You know, that kind of thing can be powerful, but it means that you have to hustle. Now, some of these festivals, if your movie's good enough, they'll invite you out, um, put you up in a hotel, and, and they might even give you free beer. So that's always a benefit. Uh, but <laughs> but it can be a little bit tiring. Uh, you, after all these uh, festivals, it, you feel really exhausted. Um, so you really... You know, it is really a matter of saying, like, what's my goal and how does this fit into it? Okay, because I've spoken to a lot of filmmakers who say, one of them in particular recently said, oh, I've just spent $5,000 in one year of my life traveling to all these film festivals and I didn't get any distribution. And she yeah. said, and if I'd taken that $5,000 and, and spent it building my database and going after online distribution, I would be much richer. Well, I mean, that that's a real factor. You have to look at it like, you know, you have to look at it like a business. If you're going to spend money doing something in business, it has to, whatever that activity is, it has to result in you making that amount of money back and then a little bit on top of it because otherwise it's a loss. And too many losses in a business means you don't have a business. So, you know, that unfortunately was a lesson that a lot of filmmakers learned that a lot of filmmakers echo to me as well, um, that they spend all this money in these festivals and they don't get the, the dream distribution deal that they thought they would get. So to your point, you know, it really comes down to, okay, if you're budgeting $5,000 for the year to go to all these festivals, does it make more sense for you to continue that route? Or would it be better to just put your movie out into one of the many video on demand marketplaces and use the $5,000 to drive traffic to your point of sale or use the $5,000, as you mentioned, to build your email database. Um, you know, that's a question that every filmmaker has to answer for on their own, uh, but I would, I would kind of agree with you that in that scenario alone, it probably would have made more sense to spend the money more effectively in other avenues. Yes. Right, right. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about another avenue of distribution, theatrical, because what I read and hear is that most filmmakers get very little money from from indie theatrical, right? Um, so based on some of the experience that I've had working with traditional distributors, you know, theatrical these days is really seen as a loss leader. Again, unless you're a major studio, which none of, you know, we're not. So let's just talk about independent theatrical distribution. Um, typical example is, let's say you have one of these movies that people pick up. Oftentimes, the distributor will, will tout the fact that it's going to be in a few theaters for, yeah, you're going to have a small theatrical run. We're going to get it in a few theaters. Now, from a filmmaking standpoint, that, that feels great because as a filmmaker, you know, your ego says, I always wanted to be in the theater, so this is great. It's my dream come true. But from a real business perspective, two things are happening. One is the distributors using this as leverage to give you another um, feature of their service, and, and it benefits you emotionally. So you'll go with it to say, oh, well, I'll be in the theaters. But the reason why the distributor is even offering theatrical because they really don't want to. 
because as you mentioned, it's expensive. It's hard to get butts in the seats, and and oftentimes it doesn't make any money whatsoever. But the reason why they're doing that is so they can then leverage the fact that it had a theatrical release when they go to make their pitch to the video-on-demand players. So if you go to cable VOD and you make a pitch and and it had a theatrical release, that gives you more leveraging power um, in that deal-making. And, you know, a lot of filmmakers don't think of it that way. Did you make any money? And and does that uh, add in or subtract from your uh, distribution deal? Well, certainly if you're making money, you know, and you set up a distribution deal, you you should in, in your contract you should know where all the monies are going to go and how they're going to be dispersed and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it, obviously, you know, if it makes money, then that's a good thing. It's just it's hard. Um, it's hard for d- distributors to, to, you know, you got to look at it from a distributor's point of view. They they're picking up X number of movies per month. Um, some of them are volume distributors where they're picking up like 20 movies a month. Other uh, distributors are more boutique where they pick up maybe four movies, um, something like that. But anyway, you cut it, each one of those movies represents a risk with the potential for reward. So the more money you lay out to try and get um, butts in the seat, or I should say the more, the more movies you have means the more money that you're using to get butts in the seats, um, it also means that you're spreading yourself thin. So trying to get a return on each theatrical release, you know, can become very cost prohibitive and downright dangerous to the bottom line uh, for distributors to really put a lot of effort into it. So that's why you'll only see like a few theaters here and there. They're trying to get the bare minimum, uh, and I'm not sure what that is, but the bare minimum for um, the movie for it to qualify to say, hey, this thing actually had a theatrical release. on the flip side, there's a, a service out there called Tug, uh, T-U-G-G dot com, and that's a crowdsourced uh, theatrical distribution model. And it's something that I think is really interesting and really awesome. So talking about risk to reward, what Tug allows you to do is say, hey, I want to have my movie in this theater in Philadelphia, for example. So you can set up a crowdsourcing campaign to sell 30 seats or 60 seats or whatever the threshold is, so you pre-sell seats for that particular theater. And if you hit the mark, then you get to have a screening at that particular theater, and which is cool because you've already pre-sold the seats, so you didn't risk anything, and the theater owner didn't risk anything by, by renting that space out to you because they know that they're already going to make their money. So it's a win-win. Um, and, I, and I foresee... Tug becoming more and more the norm for a lot of filmmakers. And frankly, um, maybe filmmakers don't know this, but there's a lot of distributors that are working with Tug for the exact same reasons. Well, I totally agree with you. I love Tug. I interviewed the owner. He's a lovely guy. He lives in Austin, Texas. <clears throat> and they, I like their whole premise and and so because of that, I often advise people to put the zip code in your opt-in box. So it's name, email address, zip code. And that way, um, let's say that you're doing something that really is for uh, Indians from India, and, and 
you could uh, you might find that there are groups in certain cities of Indians who would love your film, and if you can come up with enough names in a certain area code, you know you have a good thing for Tug to take it to the San Antonio, Texas, or some unusual city, and make money, right? Absolutely, and not the least of which is let's using your example. Let's say one of those uh, somebody that's a real enthusiast for the movie, um, you know, could go out and become a promoter for it and actually get butts in the seats and and move the needle um, to help the filmmaker in particular uh, cities and and um, depending on the subject matter, that could be really good. It is, and uh, it, they seem to be very nice people to work with. Yeah, I've, I've I've interacted with them quite a bit. Um, Nicholas, uh, the gentleman you're describing, the CEO, is is such a great guy. Um, but everybody on the team, they're super smart, they're super enthusiastic, and I think importantly, they all love independent film. I know that sounds goofy, but you know, having worked in this business for a while, I'm now at the point where I've met enough people that seem to just they don't even like movies anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> like what the heck are you doing? <laughs> Right. Well, we just, this is what, this was my third area uh, to talk about, um, uh, was theatrical on demand. So I really love that area, and I'm glad that we got into it. And there is another place, too, I think we should mention, called Gather, G-A-T-H-R dot TV dot Glosserman was a filmmaker who uh, got his uh, independent film distributed and and he didn't make any money, and he found out that they had set theaters that they work with. And, it, of course, the theater he was in was nowhere near where the audience for his film lived. So he made yeah. no money. Second film, same song. He made very little money. So he said, wait a minute, there has to be a better way for us to distribute our film. And that's how he started Gather. And Interesting, I think, yeah. This is one of the new and exciting ways, and going back to Tug, um, what do you know about their educational or their school um, distribution? Have you gotten into much of that? Yeah, not only have I gotten into that a bit, I've, I've actually, if we're talking about, um, are you talking about generally or are you talking about Tug? Yeah, or generally, generally school distribution, uh, taking a product and going across the states to some of the universities and colleges with your film. Yeah, and what you're describing is, um, as a whole, it's, it's described as um, um, non-theatrical distribution. Okay. And, and what we're talking about with that is is education fits into that, but also um, different outlets like cruise ships and airplanes and military bases and oil rigs, all of that fits underneath that umbrella as well. And this is an interesting avenue that hasn't really been tapped into by independent filmmakers. You know, when we talk about the concept of self-distribution, very few filmmakers are out there touting the fact that they're going around to libraries and universities trying to sell their movie. Um, now, granted, there are people that, that get it. There's a lot of documentary filmmakers that are making um, an educational version of their movie that has a discussion kit and all sorts of things that go along with it. But it's really interesting because there's so much avenue for revenue um, in in that area that, you know, I, I think in time uh, more and more filmmakers will figure out how to tap into it. 
Um, right now, it's a lot like anything else. You have to know sort of the right people that can help you get into those arenas. Um, but I know of at least one company on the independent side that's trying to open up those doors for, for filmmakers. And, you know, as soon as I know that that information can be made public, I'll, I'll certainly be sharing it with you and everybody else. But, yeah, uh, I mean, it's amazing to think, you know, for example, that uh, when you go in a hotel room somewhere, and you turn on those movies that are available in the hotel, um, you know, not, not the sleazy ones, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's amazing to think that that's a whole other sale. I mean, there was somebody out there knocking on doors saying, hey, would you like to, li- you know, buy this movie? The proper term is they license the movie for X number of uh, months. But, you know, any movie you're watching in a hotel means that that's somebody who sold the, the hotel rights. And... You know, we could go on all day, but what we're talking about in distribution is really what's described as rights management. So you take one movie and you break it up. And we've all talked about, you know, video-on-demand rights. Um, and even within video-on-demand, you've got transactional video-on-demand, you've got ad-supported video-on-demand, you've got subscription video-on-demand, then you have uh, various television rights, and then you have um, theatrical rights, then you have foreign distribution that's all these things and then some – and then you have all these like uh, non-theatrical things, which is cruise ships and hotels and all that. And, you, and what I'm getting at here is you can take the exact same movie, like one movie, and you could sell it like 400 times in a year. And then three years later, you could do the exact same sale all over again. I mean, this is the interesting thing that a lot of filmmakers don't think about. Most filmmakers say, oh, well, I'm just going to sell my movie to somebody and, 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 and we're going to call it a day. But from a distribution standpoint, when a distributor builds a library, what they're doing is they're saying, like, wow, these are annuities. You know, these are investments, and I'm going to go out and sell this thing again in, like, three years when it becomes available again. I mean, it's really cool how all that stuff works. I know I took it way too far, but, you know, the fact that you brought up, like, you know, the non-theatrical and, and different types of distribution is, is just is mind-boggling, and in my opinion, it's a lot of fun. Oh, it is a lot of fun. Yes, these films are annuities and investments. <clears throat> Some of the films that I work with with documentaries are are actually movements where there, there is so much lateral expansion available to them and so much more money to be made in um, in lateral expanding into products to sell, events to have, that they become uh, movements to change people's thinkings or to uh, improve our lives. So, and that is how you, you really can make money out of a film beyond just the normal distribution channels that we're talking about today. So, yeah, Absolutely. re-releases, they used to call it, but um, these are investments. Each person has to look at it as an investment. Well, it's really exciting, and, and, and there are some TV shows, some TV movies that I saw you know, when I was a kid that are still out there um, making money for whoever the rights holder is. I'm, I'm yes. sure we've all seen, you know, every Saturday it seems like 16 Candles is on. Um, I mean, it's one of those movies that just plays over and over and over, and if you're the lucky you know, rights holder, I'm not sure who it is currently. It's not the original rights holder. That movie rights have been passed around and around and around. But whoever happened to have 
you know, purchase those rights for an X number, you know, of months is has created a real investment for themselves. It's sort of like buying, it's sort of like buying an apartment unit, or maybe the better. Um, I don't want to take it too far in these analogies, but I think about all. I always think about these analogies. There is a complete similarity between investment real estate and movie distribution. And if you look at a movie like a property, you know, there's so many parallels. And what I'm describing here with these, the way the rights are getting switched around, I think a close analogy would be like a timeshare, um, you know, where one entity owns one property for one week out of the year, you know, for, and, and for that, for that week, they benefit. Um, anyway. It's a great analogy. Right. No, it's, (laughs) All right, going down our list of uh, areas of distribution, uh, let's go to transactional on demand. Sure. Um, well, that there's two different categories of transactional on demand. There, there might even be quite a few more, but in, in short, let's talk about what transactional means. What, what transactional means is that in order to see the content, you have to either click a buy now button, which is somehow linked to your credit card or whatever, you know, however you're, you're paying for it, or you, you literally pull a credit card out of your wallet and you type in a number and you make a transaction. You exchange money um, right up front for the opportunity to see that particular movie, and in the transaction, you're only watching that particular movie for that transaction. So the two common places that you see it is cable video on demand, where you go into, you know, I have Time Warner, so I go in there, and I look for something on demand, and I push a buy now button, and I buy something for $3.99. So even though I didn't actually, like, you know, get my credit card out, I still push that buy now button, I transacted with the cable company, and now I get to watch my movie for X number, you know, period of time. Um, the other uh, areas that are very common is Internet uh, transactional VOD. Uh, two really big examples of that would be Amazon um, as well as iTunes. So these are two arenas where you make a transaction to purchase um, a product. Now, in the case of Amazon, they're starting to create Amazon Prime, which is more of a subscription service, but obviously they still have the transactional uh, model that's in full play. Okay. Yeah, I use Amazon a lot. And what's so interesting is that uh, you can't turn it off. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) what they've done with their computers, but... When I'm watching something on Amazon and I turn off my television, when I turn it on the next day, instead of going to the beginning section where you have Amazon, Netflix, and all the choices, I I go right back to Amazon. Uh, Two days later even, there's my Amazon movie still waiting to say, okay, come buy some more. So they are so brilliant at marketing, aren't they? Uh, I think they're ruling the world. Look, Amazon is one of these companies that I, I tout the wonders of Amazon a lot um, to filmmakers, A, because it's pretty easy to get your content into Amazon. Um, if you want to get into, like, Amazon with high-definition content, you do have to go through an Amazon-approved encoding house in order to do that. It's another conversation. But um, once your content's on Amazon, what's really cool is if you take a weekend and you get all your friends and family and other people to buy your movie – something begins to possibly, there's no guarantees in anything I'm saying, but possibly you can really get into Amazon's uh, referral algorithm so that when other people are out there watching movies or buying 
products that are somehow similar to your movie, then your movie may come up in a recommendation that says, people who bought this also bought that. Um, and yes. Amazon's incredibly good at that. Uh, and, <clears throat> and I love it because if you can get into that Amazon machinery and really create some critical mass within you know the first 24 hours that your movie's out there, boy, uh, that, that just helps you down the road because you get rewarded at Amazon. The more you sell, the more exposure you get. I love that. Yeah, it's very good. All right, let's talk about um, subscription VOD. Sure. Um, well, I'd already begun to, to hop into that when we were talking about Amazon Prime, but the way that subscription VOD works is you have a subscription. You pay, um, in most cases, a monthly fee to be able to utilize a service. So the most popular subscription service that I can think of off the top of my head is, of course, Netflix. Um, a lot of people look at Netflix and they think of it as like an Internet platform and they try to compare it to iTunes. One of the big questions I get as a distributor is like, how do I get my movie on the Netflix? I really want to get on Netflix. Well, and I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else on Earth. Um, and, and I think the reason why people say that about Netflix is, you know, because it's such an Internet-based type uh, model, um, they call it OTT, it's over the top. It, it means it's not coming through your cable, but it is coming through your cable. It's just not coming through the same highway. Um, all of that said, the way to think about Netflix is the same way that you think about HBO or Showtime. Um, that's, and, and when you start to think of it that way, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. It's a premium subscription model. So the way that subscription works, like I said, you pay a monthly fee and then you have access to that particular service. And from a filmmaking standpoint, the way that you get into one of these subscription um, platforms, whether it be HBO or, or Netflix, is you actually have content that they want. And how do you have content that they want? Well, that content either helps them keep the subscribers that they have now or it helps them draw in more subscribers. So in the case of the movie that I was talking about earlier that has the the famed YouTuber in that, that's being launched today, you know, um, they're, I, I guess I, I, I can't really go into any sort of details, but I will vaguely say that Netflix likes that kind of stuff because it's like, oh, I see there's already an audience, there's already a ginormous buzz, we want a piece of the action. And now, once again, you know, Carol, I'll circle back to risk versus reward. There's a lot more reward than risk to pick up a movie that has a huge following um, than to pick up a movie where somebody has to work hard to get a following. Exactly. Right. Well, <clears throat> all right, let's go to, um, did, have we covered cable, VOD? That that actually is what we, subscription VOD, we talked about is HBO, Showtime, Netflix, but then cable VOD, is that just the Time Warner? I, I hit on that a little bit when I was talking about transactional um, video on demand, cable being a component of that. It is a little bit different. I mean, it's very difficult for a filmmaker to just go directly to cable and say, hey, uh, can you guys pick up my movie? Usually to get into some sort of cable video on demand um, marketplace, you would want to go through a distributor that specializes in that. Um, usually a distributor will have relationships with entities called MSO, um, MSO stands for multi-service operator. You know what? I might I might even have that wrong. MSO. Um, forgive me, everybody listening to this, if I got that one wrong. I've been spouting off so much knowledge today that you know it's possible I got that wrong. But what I'm describing is 
throughout, let's use the United States as an example, there's little itty-bitty cable providers all throughout the United States, and those are called MSOs. Um, so in order for a filmmaker to actually, you know, do this themselves, they would have to build relationships with all the various MSOs out there. Um, and, then, and then for the most part, these MSOs don't really want to deal with individual filmmakers. They want to deal with the folks who can bring them a lot of content. So, um, you know, that's just uh, FYI in terms of how all that works. Right. So um, hopefully that was helpful a little bit in terms of how cable video demand works. Okay, now how about direct DVD? Are filmmakers still printing uh, DVDs? Yeah, I mean, depending on the depending on the type of movie, depending on the target audience, there is still a market for DVD. Now, I've been talking about video on demand for as long as I've been talking about this stuff, and I'm a big proponent of where things are going, not where things have been. But there's a huge there's a huge market for DVD. Um, one of the easiest ways to do direct DVD is to revisit our friends at Amazon that we described earlier, uh, head back to those folks, and, and just uh, go through Amazon's create space. You can set up a DVD, um, the ability to sell a DVD, and, and you can go from there. Oh, my gosh, how brilliant. Yes, that would be the best thing you could do, uh, particularly when yeah. you get in, if you bought this, you, you uh, people who bought this also bought that. I loved it when that happens. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, and, and again, it has to be the right thing. You know, we did a horror movie some years ago, and, and DVD was still popular. And um, I still hear today that I had some conversations recently with a filmmaker, and he said, well, my audience really loves DVDs. And, and I'm not going to argue that. If you know that about your audience, you should, you should absolutely have that available. Right. And people go back and buy DVDs that are years old. I went back and bought The In-Laws. And um, that because I wanted the Peter Falk in laws, you know, and <laughs> and I went straight to Amazon and they had it. So that's a really good suggestion, amongst many others. But we have to rush now because we're almost out of time. But what about um, digital direct? Explain who does this and how expensive it is to set up a download on your own website. Well, I would never, and, and I want to be very, very cautious about how we describe this. When we say set up a download on our own website, you know, the, if there's some really nerdy computer people listening to this, it may lead them to believe that they should just go ahead and, and set up a paywall that collects, you know, uh, collects PayPal, and then they have it set up in their server that they start delivering a, a video stream straight from their server and. All of that gets really cost prohibitive, and it's a whole lot of work. And frankly, you know, I would I would assume just switch gears and go to Vimeo on demand, go to uh-huh. VHX.tv, um, or go to some of the many other, you know, 250 different providers out there. Uh, in fact, a distributor a company that I do some consulting with still, um, they just developed a video on demand uh, streaming platform called Cinevolt. And actually, the way that they're set up is you don't pay any money for the service. You only pay for the bandwidth. So in, okay. most, um, in, in most direct digital type deals, you, you give a percentage of each sale to the provider, which for the most part is fair. Um, but in, in, uh, in the case of Cinnable, you, you pay only for the bandwidth. So if people aren't watching the movie, you're not really paying much of anything. 
Um, I should add, I think it's like 15 or 16 bucks a month, too. I, I need to make that clear. But, you know, it's just uh, food for thought with all that. Well, could you spell it, Cineval? Uh, I wish I wish I could spell it better. Um, I think it's C-I-N-E-V-O-L-T. Okay. Um, you can tell I, I didn't come prepared to talk about Cineval, but uh, I'm just looking it up right now on my own computer. Yeah, it's Cinevolt.com. So C-I-N-E-V-O-L-T.com, Cinevolt.com. Wonderful. Um, and, uh, you know, the way that they talk about it is uh, they, they tout the fact, direct to your fans, no credit cards, no monthly fees, no rev share. Um, you would want to read the frequently asked questions because I'm just learning about it recently, so I don't fully have all the information. But that kind of thing is exciting. You know, Disturber is always a company that's trying to shake things up and disrupt a few, uh, a bit of the status quo. Um, so, uh, you know, it's exciting. It is exciting. And you are exciting. I'm so thankful that you have t- told us all of these various ways. There's so many ways to make money off your film. Filmmakers will be really impressed with this. So um, tell us um, what you do in your consultations with filmmakers, please. Sure. Well, we covered a whole lot of stuff in today's conversation, and and frankly, when I have a consultation with a filmmaker, it's all about figuring out what the goals are and then making a plan to achieve those goals. Now, sometimes the goals are very unrealistic. I want to sell this movie to Warner Brothers for $10 million. Well, if that's the first thing that comes up in the consultation, then, then our first uh, you know, <laughs> our first conversation is going to be how to reframe and, and manage expectations and try to uh, because, you know, for some movies, that's that's just not going to be reality. But that said, you know, everything that we talked about, who's the target audience, how are we going to reach the target audience, um, what's the expense of the, of the marketing uh, in terms of the strategy, how are we going to carry it out, what's our what's our street date, um, should we go, it doesn't make sense to just start and have a launch on Hulu, um, or should we go iTunes? You know, all of that kind of stuff factors into our consultation, so... Um, you know, I make it very individualized, one-on-one, uh, so that we can get to the goals and come up with a strategy uh, that filmmakers can work towards. Brilliant. That's exactly what they need, because every film has a market, its own individual, unique market. And the money is in knowing who your audience is and where you can find them, and then targeting your marketing from early on towards that market and uh, and knowing how to set up relationships with all of these companies. It's too much for any filmmaker. So having you as a guide would be a great asset for filmmakers, Jason. I can see that. So how do people reach you? Um, they can reach me. They can check out, since we're talking about film distribution, I put together an educational site uh, at howtosellyourmovie.com. Uh, HowToSellYourMovie.com is a membership-type uh, site where once you sign up, um, you're given a username and a password, and then you have access to all sorts of various training modules. And I even have a link inside the site that if you so choose, um, we could set up time where I consult with you one-on-one. So that's all available at HowToSellYourMovie.com. I love it. Well done. Oh, Jason, uh, it's so much fun to get to talk to you. It's been way too long since I've had time to chat with you, and I 
sincerely uh, appreciate the work you're doing for filmmakers, and we all really appreciate your donations to our film grant. Well, it's it's my pleasure as always, and uh, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can always do so through the site that I mentioned. Um, and I I, I just uh, you know, we we've got to keep fighting the good fight. Exactly right. Onward and upwards is what Michael Weesey says, the publisher. So thank you, and thank you, Claire, for helping us on this show today. Oh, yes. And uh, both of you, my thanks to you, Jason. Your work is visionary. And keep up the good work. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon, Jason. Thank you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Be well. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at FromTheHeartProductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.